Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, if you're interested in any of Walter's music. If you'd like to reach out to me, nave at jamesnave.com, that's a great place to start. I would love to hear from you. We have lots of things going on, and I'd like to tell you more about those. I would love to hear from you. And if you're interested in joining me on a Saturday morning writing group, I host a Saturday morning writing group every Saturday at 10 a.m. Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time. And it's called Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week. And if you'd like to be part of that, you can go to imaginativestorm.com. We gather as a group for an hour and everybody writes something and then we read it out loud and it's just good fun. I'd like to also thank Devine Dial for managing WPVM-FM. Thank you, Devine, for all the good work you do holding the station together. We couldn't do this without you. And those of you who have been listening to this show, Twice Five Miles Radio, you know that for the last couple of years, like so many people who do shows on, on WPVM-FM and other places as well, we've been on Zoom. Lately, though, things have changed slightly and some of us are able to get out more. And so today I'm doing a, a live interview at a friend's house. He's been on this show before. His name is Paul Pascarella. And Paul lives in Taos, New Mexico. He and I have known each other for many years. He's a storyteller. He's a painter. He loves the athletic side of life, like skiing and bicycle riding and, and, and motorcycle riding as well. So Paul's an all-around guy I've known for a long, long time. And I'm in his studio. The sun is going down. We're looking out over a, a great vista. And the evening is upon us. And what better time to have a conversation? Paul Pascarella, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Thank you, Nave. Thanks for coming over. So, Paul, we've known each other for 30 years, and the entire time I've known you, I've always had the pleasure of coming up here and sitting in, in your large studio looking at your paintings. So let's start there. Tell us about your relationship to imagery and why is that important for, for anybody listening, not just for the person who creates the imagery. I once sat with this friend who became a very good friend, but when I was first introduced to her, she was a little older than I am and we're sitting at this tiny table with one of those antique pharmacy lamps, kind of a little shell type shade on them. And they have, well, even the old ones have dimmers on them. And I was sitting there with this dear friend of mine, Toby. She was a movie production designer and just an incredible person. So she was sitting there and we were having this great conversation and she took the lamp and she dimmed it all the way down and then turned the light gradually back up again. And she did this a few times. And then she looked at me and she said, light is everything. Light is everything. So like if you go from total darkness and you start making it lighter, you're going to see things. And I guess I'm just always interested in how they look, whether it's a subject of something or 
just this big view out here or whatever it is. But if there's light, and I'm very conscious about light, our society seems to be not very light sensitive, which I find annoying. When you say society's not light sensitive, what do you mean by that? But I mean just light consciousness, so that you're interested in the quality of light outside or the quality of light in a room, as opposed to be blaring white LED lights that look almost white gray <laughs> or something like that. You just don't want to be in there, it seems, or I don't. And, but people just become oblivious to it. I remember once when I was traveling back in the time when I was doing performance poetry and going to schools. And the schools would house us, and often they would house us by way of getting someone in the community to volunteer. And I remember going to a house. Every light in the house was on. The fluorescent lights were on. All the lights in the living room were on. All the lights in the kitchen. It was blare, blare, blare. And I found that to be rather off-putting. And then I also remember my good friend Bill Funderburg. Years ago, we lived in Charlotte at a place called Myrtlewood. It was a large house we had rented back when we were much younger. And Bill loved the dim light. He would make shades for all the lights. The light was brown. It was soft. It was a little gray. And each little light bulb had its own light configuration. So the contrast between the blaring house somewhere in the world that I don't remember the town's name and the Myrtlewood lights Bill Funderburg created still, still stands. So here we have lights. You have lights on the paintings you have on the walls. We have light going down outside across the vista to the west. And yet mm. in this room you work, and I've been coming for 30 years, you have large windows that overlook the west, doors that open, and then you have only one window looking out to the north, and the rest of the light comes through obscure openings mm -hmm. that aren't direct. So how does that work as a painter? Why is that so important to you? Well, okay. If I'm painting during the day, I will usually have those big barn doors covering the glass doors so that the light coming in across from the painting, I can take it out if I want to because that's not a good light to have when you're working. It's like you're in your own light. The light's reflecting off what you're doing and changes it. So it's just not good. So you want indirect light. All the light underneath the roof at the top of the wall is indirect. And then is a 10 by 10 foot skylight on top. And it makes just kind of a nice mellow light. How long have you been making this art? Well, off and on I've done it, but this stretch has probably gone for about 35 years or a little more. You also love storytelling and you like to tell stories. When you are creating this work, and your work is abstract in the sense that I look at the, the piece and I see multiple colors, lots of beautiful imagery, 
and emerging images that appear unexpectedly as I'm looking at the piece. Faces, animals, stars, sometimes words. But you don't see it at first. So you, we wouldn't say that your work is realistic and yet it's imaginatively realistic because when I start to look at the images in the work, I start to see my own story. It's a stormy sort of thing that we're looking mm. at. So how does storytelling, which we understand to be mostly oral, and yet paintings really are stories. You have new work on this wall right now. Oh, wait. Some paintings have a narrative, like a story. The guy is standing by the building. So that's a certain kind of story. But these paintings don't have that kind of story. Like if there's a story to be told in like that painting, which is just about completely abstract, I mean, I don't see anything in there. But if you stare at it, those patterns or whatever will start to make your imagination look for a story, look for an image, look for what it's trained to do, or not. You might just look and see how the color relationships are, that kind of a story. How the paint is put on, how it, some of it sticks up, or the textures. So for people listening, we're on the radio. How would you describe this painting for them? For those of you who are listening, what we're looking at is a large white wall, vertical 15 feet, horizontal 20 feet. It has pegs all over the wall so Paul can put the paintings up as high or as low as he wants. Two rather large paintings hanging on the wall. One is almost completed and the other one is I believe, done. Yeah, this painting though happened really quickly and relative, relatively quickly compared to the others, which I sometimes, in, during the pandemic, I work on for six, seven months, changing them, you know, around. Anyway, this piece, I just put down a lot of stuff, collage stuff too like some wrapping paper, it was all wrinkly. And, and then I started to paint over it. And then I started to make very broad, either with a big knife edge dragging the paint or rolling it or transferring it in some way on there, usually other than with a brush. It just came out, and then I did a few more things to it, and then I added some black, and then black over the top of some color, and stretched it across, and one of the last things I did, I added that burnt red in spots toward the center. Dark greens and blues underneath things. Still some of the original paper coming through, and paint that's been pulled over it, grabbing on the little edges in the wrinkles of it all. But all of a sudden, it just was like it was finished. I said, yeah, okay. I don't, I don't feel like I have to do anything. I think that's finished. Whereas the other one I've probably been working on for like two months. So what I see are two paintings hanging on the wall. If you told me the one you haven't finished was finished, I would accept that and say, okay, that one's finished. I wouldn't know if that one was finished or not. And you tell me this one is finished, and I accept that too. But as you pointed out, it may not be. 
So one of the things I've done, and I'd like to try this now, let's get up and stand in front of the, in front of the, in front of these paintings. So this room that we're in, for those of you listening, this is a thousand square feet, I think. It's a really large, large room, but lots of opportunities to move. So what I'd like to do is I am going to improv this poem or the painting. I've called it a poem. Mm -hmm. So is it a painting or a poem? We would say it was a painting, but I'm going to just make up something inspired by me looking into, into this piece. And those of you listening, you can relax and see what kind of imagery emerges in your mind. So we're going from a painting that you can't see, Paul and I can see, to spoken words that you can hear. And if you close <laughs> your eyes, you will have your own images in your head. So here we go. The cityscape, that place you've been before where the streets widen and shrink depending on your pace. You turn to the right, you turn to the left, you pass different shops along the way. At night, few people in the day, thousands of people moving around. Leaves blow across the sidewalk in the yellow, black, pinkish, reddish place just below the aspen tree that grows out of the city, sitting above at a distance where the sun rises in the morning past the paths you've walked throughout your life. The red splotches, the crosses, the places where you might end up sometime. What's before me is behind me and the rain keeps coming down, round through the black space, so dark the night will remember it. Through the light space, the birds falling, sky fumbling through day and into the night, down, down deep to the bottom of the painting where you will see this one splotch of beautiful blue. Wake up, see what's there. Is that you shining in the distance? So that is my improvisational piece. It's response. It's what I found in this. And the thing that surprised me the most were the, the, the tree coming out right here. I saw that tree and I saw an entire mountain range behind it. See, now this painting has something. I can't quite describe it to you, but it has something of its own that makes it do that, you know? And it's something that has a lot to do with color and texture. So that's where I like to go. And since I don't have any shows right now, I just play around with them. And then if I'm sitting here looking at them a month later, then I might see something, I might change it again, you know, or turn it upside down. Sometimes when you get stuck, you turn it upside down. Or if you're working on three of them, you switch up the order. I'm always looking for something that freshens it up because I get good at things and then it gets too predictable. So I find ways making it uncomfortable or just being able to change it around. I can make the work happen. I've got two new panels coming in like this and I'll do things to them quickly and get rid of the white space. Yeah, just say like I scribbled all over this canvas and then from there, all of a sudden, looking at that, it takes me someplace. And then that place is another place, and then I add color. 
And then once in a while, you just create some incredible rhythm and accidents that happen and things that go beyond what you could think of. Then it's cool. And so one of the things that you are able to do is make these paintings and then you have people who purchase these paintings. It's your job, it's what you do for a living. And people out there thinking about doing something like this for a living, what kind of minds is required in order to make that happen? Well, you never know in a way if it was a good choice. Sometimes it's really difficult. It's not very secure. My paintings are actually looking pretty good. I mean, they could just wind up in some incredible place and my whole situation would change. Those paintings are completely abstract. And this big piece over here is maybe not so abstract. I mean, if you were to look at it at night, you would see light and dark shapes. As they got lighter, you would see all this texture and images or parts of images. There's an antler there and there's a wolf dog head up toward the corner and it's a big teepee. But what I didn't see while I was working on it was the huge figure that goes angles from bottom left to top right, right across the whole thing. The figure's probably nine feet. Never saw it until much further into the painting and then it started to come out. And that figure turned out to be like some sort of joker with its arms spread and its leg all the way back and a headdress. I did that painting in 2020 during the pandemic for a long time. Worked on it and reworked it and worked and reworked. And then it came out to be like this cosmic joker. And early on in March 2020, four days after the new moon, when I do these ceremonies and when I often find the magic thing that ends working on the painting. So I was doing a ceremony and an offering for the pandemic for all my friends that they would be safe. That was my intention. And sitting right out in front of these big windows in the sky was the crescent moon just hanging there. And I was like, wow, this is going to be incredible. And the sky here in March at night was crystal clear. There was the clarity of the moon and some stars. It was everything was there except airplanes. No airplanes. And so the whole thing had a purity to it that was not really seen for a while. And there was something completely magical about it. And it drew me outside. And I was out there looking at this scene and suddenly I just got this message. This ceremony isn't about keeping my friends safe. This ceremony is about knowing what's going on. And so I realized that the pandemic was like the cosmic joker in the painting's way of having everyone take a pause because this show really isn't going anywhere good around the planet. This is a disaster, what's happening politically, technologically, what's happening with the technology. I've never seen this before happen like this. So this ceremony turned out to tell me that, yeah, this could be a very positive change. Make a space, and it may not happen all at once, or it may not seem like it's happening at all, but in little ways, it's happening to people inside them. Some can't handle it and some just feel that 
oh yeah, I look at something different now. So that painting was trying to do that. I just kept painting over things and painting new things on. And at one point, I just stopped there. I had this great young guy, he was from MoMA in LA, and he was just driving, and he stopped at my studio on his drive. And he saw it when I just put in more black, and he walked in and said, wow, that's great. So that's what I think about the cosmic situation. And I like that it has figures, but yet I don't go to put them in that one over there, the green and black one. So why is the new moon the best time to paint? I noticed that it was always a creative time to get solutions for decades. And then one time I was up in South Dakota, the end of a ceremony, and I'm saying goodbye to this medicine man. At the end of our little conversation, he said, don't forget when you really want to pray four days after the new moon. And I'm thinking, wow, that's the crescent. And I said, hey, why is that? And he said, because there are cycles to like everything. And in that cycle, that's when the spirit world comes the closest to our world. So you could say it's the spirits or the spirit world, or it's the muse, or it's whatever it is. It's a dark time of no moon, feminine darkness, wetness strong and fertile. And then as it starts to just turn toward light, there's something about that period right in there. I wonder if the spirit world is coming closer or does the crescent moon give us some kind of heightened awareness about the spirit world, which is always around us, maybe always close. Yeah, I was just thinking that it's kind of a hard thing to talk about in a way because there is a lot of speculation involved. <laughs> I've had a really fortunate life where I got to see some of that, either in some of these ceremonies. I had my envelope pushed out, opened to certain things that didn't quite fit in the other reality. I know there's more things at play than what we believe, what we think there is, that we can just see and gravity down. Like when I can paint, like when I did that little bighorn painting for my friend Rob that I was commissioned to do, and I was like, okay, now you're gonna do a little bighorn painting, Battle of Little Bighorn. I got a good, brief education, three books and a trip up there and more information from experts and experience with the Lakota who were part of that, a big part of that. Started to make some sense to me. Now Rob, he saw this and he commissioned me to do a painting on the Battle of Little Bighorn. I was like, well, Rob, you know, I'm an abstract painter. And he goes, yeah, I know. He said, but I just want to see what you're going to do. And so when I started to do it, I started to do these little ceremonies because that's what it was about. It was a direct link. And so I did that and then I'd find stuff to paint. I think I painted it all red and then I painted it with a lot of ochre strokes all over it and some yellow. And they were not my typical colors either. It just took on this life of its own. 
And then I started to make it more like, since I knew the locations well, I had seen it and walked around there. And so I thought, yeah, the painting, maybe it needs to be like an abstracted map. You've got Reno coming in over here. You've got Custer taking his guys over to the far side over there. And, and you have the whole Indian camp down here on the lower left in the valley where you could have nearly 2,000 teepees without seeing them from very far away. 2,000 teepees, maybe six or 8,000 Indians. And their animals left a swath of eaten grass and food for a mile far across so that when the cavalry came, they didn't have food for their horses. So they were fatigued, didn't have food for their horses, their animals were off, and their guns didn't work right. They had worse guns than the Indians had. When they heated up, they didn't eject shells from the chamber, which is the problem, because you had to then dig out the shell before you could put another one in. There were single shot. But anyway, the painting of it just took on this thing. And there were a couple of little more realistic things in there, battles, darker, black, cloudy battles. It was just an interesting project. I didn't have any time limit on it. Anytime I got stuck, I would do one of my little ceremonies, try to let go of the whole idea, just have something more spontaneous happen. So I look for inspiration. And now I'm looking at these, these two different sides of myself, say, the one that has figures in it, and then there's one that doesn't have any figures, it's just paint. And they paint in a way so that they inspire your imagination toward figurative elements. It's not that I do it intentionally, it's just the way I paint. I feel like there's something happening here that I need to resolve or break through which is encouraging. I'm older, so to have even the optimism that you're going to break through to something better is pretty good. But I look at that one with the figures and I go, yeah, I like doing that. So I just have to take it as it comes, but I feel like I'm getting to the edge of something so that my creativity can expand. I may start doing big figure ones, or I might start writing, or doing movement, a dance from decades of Tai Chi and Qigong, using my body like that. I was thinking of something to contribute, like teach people. How to center yourself like inside your body and get into the energy that's in there. Do these forms, like a dance, Tai Chi is actually comes from a martial art. And Qigong is the cultivation of Qi in your body. And so these forms are working with the Qi and massaging the organs of the body. And the organs of your body are just everything, right? This is how you stay healthy. This is how you go on living a good quality of life, right? But I was thinking of this form thing as also for balance, because it seems like people don't have terribly good balance. So, I mean, when I read the number one fear in people over 60 was falling down, I was like, well, there's something wrong with this picture. No one has to fall down. I mean, you're gonna fall down once in a while, but not so easily, maybe. And I think that's really, a, that's a, 
it's a beautiful thing. Another beautiful thing is just using and being in your body. Just being in your body instead of focused on something on the screen. So when you do this work and you move and you get the chi flowing, do you ever just sit down afterwards and not do anything rather than approach the canvas? Do you mean do I just walk over and sit down and yeah. look at it? Yeah. Sure, sure. More than painting, yeah. probably. Right, yeah. Which is a fault, I believe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's not all so perfect and airy. Sometimes you just have something you think is coming along pretty good and do something that makes it not so good. And it won't turn out to be good for quite a while. <laughs> but that movement that I was doing, I like to have that movement in my painting. I don't like using my fingers to draw instead of using the core of my body. And your body knows a lot that your head doesn't know. Like your head is it's rational, it puts things together and your head takes credit for everything. Oh, well, you know, I thought of that. I didn't think of half the things that are good that I do. I don't know where they came from, but I definitely did it. I could tell that, but I don't know how. I want to figure out a way to put them together where it becomes something else that may reignite my full enthusiasm to do another body of work. I mean, maybe I'll get too old to go out and go skiing and bicycle, mountain biking and motorcycling and stuff. And, and I'll have to just work on these paintings more. Do you think mountain biking and skiing and motorcycling get in the way of the paintings or inform the paintings? I think that there's things in my paintings from doing those things that go through my body and come out like something I might like, a certain curve, just like my knowledge of the landscape. I don't go and paint the landscape out there with an easel. I'm not painting that landscape. I'm painting the landscape that it is more than what it looks like. Different kinds of textures of it and movement of it and wind and all of that. I try to absorb all of that incredible stuff and then create ways to put it down without me getting so much in the way. And you have a lot of people who own your paintings. I know I have one. I know lots of people who have these paintings on their walls, some large walls, some small walls, all over the country. And you've had paintings in museums and in art shows, and yet you've never gone commercial in the way that some painters, artists go commercial. You've always seemed to have an organic way of having the work emerge and then end up on the walls. Is that something that you cultivate or is that just the way it works? I mean, if I were to sit down and think, how could I be a commercial success at this? That would affect what I'm painting. Because I would know, okay, yeah, I know that people love this thing that I've done. So I could just do more of them. And I could just keep doing them. Maybe change the color a little. And then, you know, it actually becomes like a corporate image. 
like more and more people will see that image and recognize it all to your enhancement of being that artist. I never liked that because I didn't want to be that artist. I never did anything where I wanted to be that artist for very long. I like to be able to change. And when I did a lot of gallery shows and had a certain show each year somewhere, it was successful, but I always made the gallery people nervous because they weren't quite sure what they were going to get. It wasn't going to be the same thing as last year. I just like being able to grow, to have it be more part of an exploration. You've had a great deal of commercial success over the years, and yet you remained non-commercial, which I admire. And that's really rather hard to do. I'm sure other painters have done that as well. And Taos is an area that's always had painters living here. Some have had commercial success, others haven't. So it is a long tradition of painting that's here, and you're part of that tradition, as well as the part of the creative tradition that's always been in this area. One of the things I've noticed about Taos, and I've been here for a long time, it can be very profitable or beneficial to the artist because it's a community that celebrates, celebrates the making of art. And yet most of the people that I know here aren't that focused on making the big, big splash, the flash, the fame, which I think is a plus. Well, it's kind of a double-edged sword. I think it would be better now than when I was young because too much success too early, it gives you the power to do things maybe that you couldn't do before, but it also makes a lot of expectations about what you're doing and what you have to conform to or what you think you do. I try not to think about it that much. Of course, then I'll get myself in some financial fix and, and it'll take all my energy to figure it out, which isn't good, not now. But I do feel this time coming where I can maybe join these ideas or have them turn into something else, some new thing. So, Paul, speaking of a new thing, storytelling is something that you've had in your life for a little while now. I know you've been playing around with the idea of storytelling as a hobby. Maybe even storytelling is something you occasionally do on a more professional level. Like, for example, you won the Story Slam at the Taos Storytelling Festival recently and you appeared on the storytelling stage. So I was wondering if you might be willing to tell us a story as we move into the second part of our time together here in this hour. Nave, you got me into storytelling in a way. Back years ago, and you said, Paul, you know, you should really tell stories in this storytelling slam. And I was just terrified, like, no, like tell stories in front of people not a good idea. But anyway, you talked me into doing it like you usually talk me into anything. Tell a story. What kind of story would you like, Nave? Well, you know, I've heard you tell a Christmas story. I've heard you tell stories about your adventures in the art world. I've heard you tell stories about Christmas time. You've told a couple of great New Jersey stories. So you could tell almost any story you pleased. 
And in some ways, this conversation that you and I have been having for the last bit of time is storytelling. You've been telling a story about your, your life in the visual arts world. So what story would you like to tell? I like the elk story, and I also like the Christmas story. Well, it is almost Christmas. I mean, it's the 20th of December. Well, why don't we take a Christmas story run? Okay, okay, I have one, and it, and it doesn't have to just be a Christmas story. It, no. It, it just says, let me set the stage. By because all, all stories should have a little separate reality to them, you know, like a little traveling to story land. Robert Bly used to do that, had drummers. I didn't just, you know, traveling over there. So when I moved out west, I grew up in New Jersey. My parents were in New Jersey, and I went to school in New York City. And I would always like to go back for Christmas and see my parents, just to be back there, because I was gone most of the time. And so I went back to see them. And of course, I would see them, but a lot of times I would be visiting friends, or I would go into New York City and see my art school friends. And this particular time, it was shortly before Christmas, and one of my fellow students from Parsons and my favorite teacher, in fact, everybody's favorite teacher, was this man called Emile Antonucci. So we're set in the early 70s, and we had made a dinner date. This woman, Dawn, and Emile and I, Emile was taking us to a French restaurant, and Emile loved Paris, was his favorite city, although he was a real New Yorker. And he was a graphic designer of the finest kind, an artist doing wood engraved prints and different things. But more than that, he was, I think he might have been a saint. In a high-stress school in New York City like Parsons, Emile just made everything seem calm and peaceful and great. And so as soon as he walked in the door, students flocked to him for salvation. And here he was having dinner with my friend and I. And it was downtown, so I, I got into New York a little early. So I thought I would do some Christmas shopping. And so I'm uptown there, you know, around the 50s. I went into Bloomingdale's and I got a couple of little things. I was leaving and it was, you know, it was getting close to where I should start making my way downtown. And I walked by the men's clothing section and there was this fantastic arced rack of cashmere scarves all different colors hanging on this rack. And as I was going through, I just slowed down a little. I did have a little time, and I looked at, the, at this display, which was very enticing, you know? So I walked over, and I, I always feel, you know, the scarves with the edges of my fingers, and they felt really great, and they were a little thicker than usual. Not that I've ever had a cashmere scarf at this point, I think, but anyway, I picked one off the rack and I put it around my neck and I said, oh my God, this thing feels really good. And I took it off like, 
I was committing a crime and put it back on the rack. And then all of a sudden this woman came up and she was nice looking and really had this pleasant face. And she said, oh, you know, you should really try that on. It suits you. I said, oh yeah, sure. And so I put it back on, I wrap it around my neck now, you know, and it's this thick cashmere scarf. And I'm, I'm thinking about Colorado and the mountains and how cold and windy and snowy it gets sometimes. And the scarf could be really great, but I think it was like a little over a hundred dollars in those days. And it was like, that was a lot of money to spend on a scarf, right? But the, there was something special about the saleswoman. She didn't seem like a salesperson. In fact, you know, at certain points in your life, you look back and you go, was that person real? Because there are those little angel people that run around sometimes, maybe, I don't know. So I'm trying the scarf on and I'm looking at her and she's looking at me and I go, I think I'll take it. And I buy the scarf. I made a decision. And so I wrap it around myself, you know, and my coat, and I go out into the cold, and it's really cold in New York this night. It's like going to go down to 14 degrees in New York City. That's like being at the North Pole. Damp, cold, windy. And I work my way downtown, and there are my friends, like, outside the restaurant talking, and when I meet them, and we go inside, and everybody knows Emile speaking French, and, and they sit us at this great table, and we have this wonderful dinner. Great conversations, we're back together again, it was really terrific. Nice wine, we're all a little buzzed, and, and desserts, and I mean, we just had this great French dinner with good friends. And then finally we finish up and we're about to leave, I get my coat on, I got my scarf out, and we walk outside, and there was an overhang from the restaurant out over the sidewalk, so it was almost like a little theater. We're getting our clothes on there, and I think there might have been a heater, and the wind is just howling down the street. Not many cars across the way where we were parked. We were parked about a block away on the side street, and I'm putting my new scarf around my neck you know, like tucking it all in around my face and my collar up and heading out into this, like, you know, now it's maybe 19 degrees with a stiff wind. And as we're starting across the street, my friends are in front of me, my two friends, I look diagonally across the street and it's one of those places where they're putting up a new building. And whenever they dig these giant pits in New York City, they put up like a 10-foot plywood barrier, like a wall around it, with a fence usually behind it, so you don't go charging into the pit because you've had enough. And I noticed this little figure in black, sitting down, knees up, head on the knees, and it looks like a woman, like a street person on the street with no shelter, 19 degrees, going down to 14, wind howling. And my friends didn't see her, but I did, you know, because I was like in Colorado, you know, if you're not paying attention looking, you know, you'd be like run over by an elk. And then I'm walking like that and I said, what happens to that person? What happens 
when it's 14 degrees and you're sitting on a sidewalk in New York. And I'm thinking about this walking down the sidewalk. My friends are getting further ahead of me as I'm in this thinking thing about that. And I said, yeah, you know, maybe I should give her my scarf. And that was sort of a joke to myself, like, you know, give her my scarf. I just spent more money on the scarf than I had in the world. And I was taking the scarf to Colorado, so that wasn't a serious thought. But then this little feminine voice, actually not too unlike the voice of that woman in Bloomingdale's, is on my shoulder saying, well, you know, it is Christmas. It is Christmas, and that would be in the Christmas spirit, and it would be really kind if you gave her your scarf. And I was like, yeah, that's a really, that's a really sweet idea, you know? But that has nothing to do with the reality of the situation that I'm walking down the sidewalk in New York. And then she comes back and gives another little thing, you know, like, hmm, be very generous. And I'm like, hmm, yeah, I would. And all of a sudden, out of the other shoulder, comes this voice, really rough voice, and it says, yeah, sure, you just spent all your money on a cashmere scarf, and you're going to give it to a drunk on the sidewalk, a street person all boozed up, and she wouldn't know a cashmere scarf from a Volkswagen at this point. And I was like, whoa, you know? And then the other voice comes back, a little angelic voice, telling me how great it would be. And pretty soon my friends are like, way ahead of me on the sidewalk, and I'm dangling back here in this dilemma of what to do. So pretty soon, I'm walking down the sidewalk, I'm slowing down even more, and now I am almost to a stop. And I notice that I turn, and I start angling toward the curb, and I step off onto the street, and I start angling down the street, which had no traffic, toward that corner, slowly. And of course, the voice on my, my right shoulder was like so animated, completely crazy, that I couldn't even understand what he was saying. Just, turn back before it's too late. You know, your friends are leaving. You're going to have to walk. And, all this stuff. And so I start walking back steadily toward the corner. And as I'm approaching, I'm wondering, who's under that stuff? Black, all of black. You know, who's, who's in there? I said, are you really going to do this? No, you're not really going to do it. Yeah, maybe you are. I don't know. And then pretty soon, I had the scarf untied on my neck. And the next thing was that it was in my hand. As I started to approach the figure on the sidewalk, and it was a small woman in black with the black something on her head, forehead down on her knees, and it was black on black. My black scarf fit in perfectly. So I slowly started to walk up, and I really didn't know who was in there. I was expecting something maybe not so pleasant it didn't matter. And I tapped her on the knee. 
And when I tapped her on the knee, she slowly raised up from this position, surrounded in black, except for her face. And her face, I was just startled because her face was not all scarred up and dirty and everything. Her face had fine features. Her skin was very light and kind of perfect with high cheekbones and this nose and mouth and, and these eyes, these light-colored eyes that just completely sober looked right through me. And I was stunned for a moment, you know, and I, I took the scarf and I handed it to her and I said, this is for you. And she reached up with her hand and she took it without taking her eyes off me and she wrapped it slowly around her neck and the bottom of her face. And she said, thank you. And then just like fading to black in the scene, she slowly lowered her head back down where it was. And I was left standing on the sidewalk with myself. Well, I don't think I had ever done anything like that before. And I turned around. Now to catch up with my friends, I was just sort of skipping down the street, you know, about 14 inches off the pavement. I was just hopping down there, you know, to catch up with them. And I felt so good about this little interaction I just had. And caught up to my friends and said, oh, yeah, OK, sorry. I was busy doing something. What's really interesting about this story is that random acts of kindness are not only rewarding, I think they're really important in our evolution as a soul or a person. Because I had the great fortune of having had, most people would call it a near-death experience. I would call it a death experience. When I was in an emergency room, I was doomed. Basically, I was dead. And I remember leaving the emergency room and crossing over to the other side and traveling out into space or wherever you would call where you go. And one thing that came was there's nothing physical over there. So all the physical things that you may have achieved don't really matter now. And one of the only things that was obvious that I ever really achieved in this life was this night when I gave a scarf for no reason whatsoever to this woman on the street. That counted for a lot. The end. Hey, Paul, thanks for that story, man. I've heard it before, and I never got tired of it. Fantastic story. Just give your scarf away. I really do appreciate that. So we're almost to the end of the show. And on that note, is there anything you'd like to say in closing? Always do 
what you really feel motivated to do. That's the line. Not what you're supposed to do. Your fascination for it is so great. You should always follow what gives you pleasure. If it's riding a motorcycle, then just go and ride one. But you know what I'm saying is like, if you really want to do something that gives you timeless pleasure, then you should try to cultivate that. Well, Paul, thanks for being on Twice Five Miles Radio. <laughs> Thank you, Nave. Good to see you again. And there you go, my friends, a conversation with Paul Pascarella. I've always enjoyed my talks with Paul and my visits and his artwork. And today was no exception, so I'm glad that you listened in as well. I really appreciate it, and I also appreciate you tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting this show first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thanks, Walter Parks, for our theme song. I really appreciate it. WalterParks.com if you'd like to know more about Walter's music. And if you would like to reach out to me, Nave at JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. JamesNave.com, obviously, also is my website. You can find out more about what I'm up to there. If you would like to write with me on Saturday morning at 10 o'clock Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time, you can join me and my collaborator, Allegra Houston, in the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week session. And you can find out more about that at imaginativestorm.com. The door is always open. Thanks to Bean Dial for managing WPVM-FM. We appreciate it. Once more, thank you ever so much for tuning in. And I do hope you tune in again next time. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line. This little song that will take us up to the top of the hour is sung by Marvin Parks, based in Paris, France. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. How about that? Chestnuts roasting on an open fire Jack Frost nipping at your nose Yuletide carols being sung by a choir and folks dressed up like Eskimos Everybody knows a turkey some mistletoe help to make the season bright tiny tots with their eyes all aglow will find it hard to sleep tonight they know that Santa on his way He's loaded lots of toys and goodies on his sleigh And every 
mother's child is gonna spy to see if reindeer really know how to fly and so I'm offering this simple phrase to kids from one to 92 although it's been said many times many ways Merry Christmas to Merry Christmas to you. 